0: The Old Testament text is the 84th Psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Did you uh, make a pilgrimage to grandma's house when you were a kid? You know, different times of year. You'd find yourself in the car with your brothers and sisters all packed in. Looking forward to getting to grandma's house where there are we're going to be oatmeal cookies and milk and all kinds of good stuff waiting for you. You know, I think uh, that's a, a beautiful image and an apt image. There's something about being uh, in the presence of Grandma. That was just great. And uh, we have one of our grandchildren here. We have a new home, and Olive has come to visit us, uh, Marmy and Pop Pop. And we've tried to make it, uh, uh, you know, a fun and uh, memorable experience As memorable as it can be for a kid as like a year and a half, (laughs) but anyway, uh, this is I think uh, worthwhile to keep in mind, sort of as background as we think about this psalm. Here's something else to think about: Where would you like to live if you could live anywhere in the world? Anywhere in the world, where would it be? What would be your like your ideal, you know, location? Are you the sort of person who, you know, watches Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, you know, and think to yourself, man, Malibu would be the place for me, or maybe Honolulu or someplace like that. That's where I'd really just really have a great life if I could just be in that place. Some of you know I've been involved in real estate for a long, long time uh, as an investor, but also I, for a period of time, was involved in helping uh, investors liquidate their their holdings. And... uh, you know, there's a, there's a rule in real estate. Actually, three rules. You know the three rules in real estate, aren't you? Three rules. Location, location, location. It's all about location. And there's some truth in that. Now, I've lived in some nice places in my own life over the years. Uh, for a period of time, we lived on Cape Cod. Now, Cape Cod's a remarkable place for lots of reasons. It's got history. It's got charm. It's got a lot of money. <laughs> it's got a number of things going for it. Cape Cod is one of those places that is like a destination. You don't you don't go through Cape Cod anywhere to anywhere, unless you're like heaven, because people go to the Cape to die. I mean, it's like it's really like that. I buried fifty people when I was a pastor on Cape Cod. I was there for about eight years, and it just seemed like every month I was doing a funeral. Uh, and the reason is is because you know people want to die in a place that they like living in. Isn't that kind of an a interesting paradox? <laughs> but people make the trek to Cape Cod cash in everything that they own and try to buy like a little 800-square-foot cottage (laughs) and uh, live out their lives there. Great place to live. We enjoyed it. We lived about a quarter mile from the beach, uh, lots of restaurants. We lived on the golf course. I mean, it was really a nice setup that we had. I've not had, you know, that same experience everywhere. Uh, There was a period in my life where I was in foster care as a kid Spent time in foster care and didn't like where I lived at that point in my life at all. Wanted out of that place. And the people who were my foster parents probably wanted me out too. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a so I've, I've, I've known both sides of this. Uh, but, you know, when you're a ward of the state, I, you know, um, I, I try to explain to people what it's like to be a ward of the state. Basically, when you're being cared for by the authorities. It's like being raised by the DMV. I mean, it's, it's not something that you want to experience. But I experienced it. And uh, anyway, so I know, what, I know what it's like to live in a nice place. I know what it's like to live in a not-so-nice place. Now, uh, when it comes to places that we could live in, sometimes appearances belie the truth. We've all seen those films about people who are incredibly wealthy and are surrounded by just every convenience and luxury that they could possibly want, and they're miserable suicidal even. And then, uh, you know, some of you have had the f- good uh, fortune, the blessing of knowing some people who were very poor and very, very happy. I remember my wife and I, uh, when we were just getting started in the ministry years ago, we went to visit a, an elderly couple, retired minister and his wife, the Emmetts. Brother Emmett. He was just the most cheerful guy you'd ever want to meet. If, the, if he felt like the, the pastor who was preaching was too dour, he'd actually shout from the congregation, we've heard the bad news, now let's hear the good news. <laughs> he was that kind of guy. And we went to visit them in their trailer. They were in their 80s at the time, poor as you could possibly be, but they were full of joy and love. And it was a marvelous place to visit. Not because the situation was great, but because the people were great. You were in the presence of saints, and that made all the difference. These were lovely, giving people. This is something to keep in mind. The best place to be, no matter where you are, is in the presence of God. Don't ever forget that. The best place to be, no matter where you, wherever you are, whether you're in prison or in the mansion, is in the presence of God. That's where you want to be. This psalm is about a pilgrimage to the temple. Now, a temple is a dwelling place. I don't know if we think about it that way. Uh, and it's as though when we think about temples, I think today, we think about them like churches. And if the people aren't in the church, then nobody's home. But that's not the way people in antiquity thought about temples. The temple was the dwelling place of a god. And the god was always there, unless the god was unhappy and departed. And that can happen. By the way, the term for that is Ichabod. The glory has departed. But anyway, it's a dwelling place. Now, it's a pretty sort of magnificent dwelling place, because we're talking about a god, after all, right? And there are courts and altars, and when you think about courts, again, we don't normally associate courts with homes, dwelling places, but when you uh, receive many people as a very important and dignified homeowner, you've got to have a place to put those folks uh, so that they're not necessarily invading your private space, and courts were understood to function in that manner. So the court of a king was a place where the king would meet and greet those who had come to be with him. Uh, It was a place uh, often where judgment was pronounced. That's why to even this day when we hear the word court, we think about a judicial court. Uh, And that's certainly the case when it comes to a dwelling place for a god. But um, it's also important to keep in mind that there were altars. And when we think about altars and we think about worship, Uh, One of the things to sort of keep in mind when we think about altars and worship and temples is that an altar was actually a place that you went to uh, to prepare yourself to come into the presence of the divine. It wasn't necessarily that you met a God there. It was intended to get you ready to be in the presence of a God. So let's say you were unpresentable because of the trip. Um, maybe, you know, thinking about this in parallel uh, manner with regard to visiting somebody who's important and you want to see, well, you know, you might want to wash up (laughs) after your long trek to get into the presence of the person that you're visiting. Same thing's true with altars. An altar was a place to get cleaned up so that you could come into the presence of the divine and make your appeal Uh, And that's often what was, uh, you know, sort of expected, that you would come and seek the favor of the God, and in order to make yourself presentable to seek favor, that's what would occur. This is one of the things to keep in mind when you think about the temple, uh, Solomon's temple, the second temple, the altars for sacrifice were not in the presence of God. Within the inner recesses of the temple, in the Holy of Holies, was where God dwelled, But uh, the sacrifice that made the worshiper presentable was conducted outside. This is also something to keep in in mind when we think about Christ died outside the city gates. There's parallel there. But this is all important to keep in mind as we think about being presentable. We're going to get cleaned up. If we've done things that are wrong, there's some kind of moral filth that uh, we need to shed, get cleaned up from, well, a sacrifice has to be made in order for that to occur. As I noted, this psalm is about a journey. Did you know that uh, every male Israelite was required by the law to uh, make a pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem, to the temple, three times a year? There were three pilgrimage feasts. There was Passover, there was Pentecost, and there was tabernacles. And so two times in the spring and once in the fall, all the men... Came to Jerusalem uh, to worship and to participate in these festivals. Now, the festivals or feasts, um, two of them were like reenactments. Have you ever come across some history buff that's like really so into history that they dress up like people who, you know, live during the period of time they're really into? You know, you've got Civil War reenactors. You don't see them anywhere around here. But if you go, like, into the south the United States, this is an interesting thing. Ever think about it? It's the side that lost. It's really into reenacting the Civil War. You don't get that up north. I mean, up north, there's just, like, nobody who's, like, really into Civil War reenactments. But you get down, to, get down to the North Carolina, South Carolina, everybody's dressing up like their ancestors, remembering how they got defeated. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, but you had these reenactments, like, what is Pentecost? Well, uh, well. before I get to Pentecost, so, it's, so you have the reenactments kind of sandwiching something else. So the reenactments, of course, were Passover, which is God's deliverance from the land of Egypt, right? And so that's remembered through a particular set of practices and rituals that are performed to, to re, sort of reenact what occurred so that the people who were alive at the moment can feel like they were a part of the deliverance itself, Right. And then Tabernacles is, again, kind of bringing back to mind what it was like living in the wilderness in those makeshift shelters that they had to dwell in. It's kind of like camping, you could say. You know, I've never been into camping. You know, why anybody would want to go out and, like, be cold and live in a stinky canvas shelter for, like, a week? This is not my idea of fun. But anyway, some people like that. I'm not saying that they're wrong. Well, maybe I am. But anyway... So you've got these, these two you know, festivals where people make a, a long journey and come into the presence of the Lord uh, at his temple and reenact uh, what has occurred so that they can identify with it. And in between, you've got Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. Following uh, Passover, seven weeks are supposed to pass, and then Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, is observed, and so 50 days is what Pentecost is referring to. And that is not looking backward. That's looking forward. It's the Feast of the First Fruits. And one of the things that's important to note when we think about Pentecost, timing is really a big deal when it comes to why things happen when they do in the New Testament. There's something about Pentecost and the, 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 the falling of the Holy Spirit or the descent of the Holy Spirit uh, Upon the disciples who were the gathered there and and praying and waiting for the gift of the Father, something about it occurring on Pentecost that's important. What is it? It, it what it, what is the message or what is the the takeaway uh, when it comes to this? Well, the feast of the first fruits are a it's a it's a festival, it's a feast in which the first fruits of the harvest are brought in in anticipation of the harvest to come. And so there's a celebration in anticipation of a greater harvest. Now, with that in mind, what we see with Pentecost in the New Testament is the first fruits of the preaching of the gospel. So it's the harvest of souls that's being or is occurring at Pentecost with regard to the church in anticipation of what? That final day, that final harvest that will occur at the end of time when the angels bring in the sheaves. You might remember that song. Anyway, so that's what's kind of you know, important about Pentecost in terms of looking forward. But with regard to the Israelites, it was looking forward to something just much more sort of, um, well, uh, close at hand with regard to the end of the harvest season. Now, we're also on pilgrimage. You ever thought about that? We're on pilgrimage in the same way that these folks were on pilgrimage. Uh, and I'm not talking about LARPing here, live action role play, like my daughter engaged in when she was a historical reenactor in Sturbridge Village in, in uh, Massachusetts. She did that for one summer. She'd dress up like she was you know, someone who lived in 1815 or something like that. And then she would, you know, we'd talk to her and she'd talk to us like she was a person from 1815. I was like, you can stop with the LARPing now. It's, <laughs> you're not actually there anymore. But anyway, uh, but, so it's not as though we're, we're doing that. We really are on pilgrimage. We will all find ourselves in the presence of God someday. Every single one of us. Whether we want to find ourselves in the presence of God or not. Life is, well, this pilgrimage, and one way to think about it is it it works kind of like a conveyor belt. You've seen conveyor belts at airports, right? Or maybe you've just watched the Jetsons, (laughs) where, you know, you're just being carried along, you know, to a destination. And it doesn't really matter uh, whether or not you want to arrive at the end of the conveyor belt line. You will at some point. Um, And that's true for every one of us. We will all find ourselves in the presence of God, giving an account giving an account of what we had done while we lived our lives in this world. So in the end, we will find ourselves in God's presence. The difference between Christians, of course, and those who are not Christians, is not whether or not we'll find ourselves in God's presence. It's the kind of welcome we'll receive. That's the difference. So Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress is a model for us as Christians to keep in mind because we intentionally or at least should intentionally be making this trek into the presence of God with joy, anticipating a welcome. Now, where do we find strength for this journey? Well, where did those folks who made this pilgrimage find strength for their journey? I'd like to think about that with you a little bit. Um, What do I mean by strength for the journey? There's reference to strength. uh, Several times in the course of this psalm, we're told at one point that those who are making pilgrimage in verse 7, go from strength to strength. What in the world does that mean? Strength to strength. Are we talking about physical strength? If so, maybe we can describe physical strength in terms of physical metrics, like horsepower. How much horsepower you got? I think we all know that's not what's being referred to here. Maybe strength of character, strength of will. You know, determinate kind of a determination that we, that we have to make this trek. And I think that's closer to the mark, and I think that's relevant, that's important, but I don't think that's what this is referring to here. Blessed are those, we're told, in verse 5, whose strength is in you. What's that mean when we're told that our strength is to be found in the Lord? What does that practically mean? I think uh, if we understand it properly, it helps us understand what strength to strength is getting at. There's something about already being in the presence of God that gives us strength to make the trek to be in God's presence. Let me put it to you this way. So, you remember the Israelites when they were led by, you know, the cloud and the pillar of fire, and there was a very definite sense that God was with them as they made their trek across The wilderness. And there are places in the Old Testament where, you know, the patriarchs, you know, Moses and others say, the last thing we ever want to see happen, Lord, is you abandon us. Because if you abandon us, our hope is gone. It goes with you. There's something about God's presence in our lives that gives us strength. How does that work, though? i thought about this a little bit, and I've got a story to tell that I've told before, but there are enough folks here who haven't heard it that we're, you know, I'm going to use it again. Okay? So those of you who have heard this before, just too bad. <laughs> there are folks who haven't heard this story. But I remember years ago, uh, I was uh, an assistant pastor in an inner-city church, uh, and this particular church was a very diverse and vibrant church. We had uh, five or six congregations at any given time. Uh, We had people from, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 different countries uh, in the English-speaking service at any time. It was just a really dynamic hopping place. Uh, But because we were in the center of the city, and it was during the crack epidemic, uh, there were certain dangers that uh, came with being at that church and worshiping where we were, and we weren't going anywhere, but we just kind of recognized that this was the case, and I remember one Sunday night, there was a large man who came in uh, to the service after we had finished the worship, and he went from woman to woman. It was interesting that he was you know, targeting the women in the congregation and uh, ask, asking them for money. And uh, I had enough experience with people living on the street to know that that money that he was looking for was going to be used for something that wasn't in his own best interest, let alone, you know, taking into consideration all of these women who were, you know, feeling very awkward and threatened by this man's presence. Now I'm an average-sized guy, okay? I'm an average-sized guy, five ten-ish, maybe five eleven-ish, in you know, maybe even six foot when I got my heat my, my big shoes on. <laughs> but I'm an average-sized guy. This guy was bigger than me, so I went over to another guy in the in the church who was a, an ex-marine. And a pretty good sized guy, a lot bigger than me and bigger than the other guy. And I I said to him, okay, this is the way it's going to work. I need you to just stand behind me. You don't have to say a word. All you need to do is just stand there. Okay? Follow me. So we went over to this gentleman who wasn't acting very gentlemanly. (laughs) And I just said, it's time for you to leave. And I looked up at my friend and I said, right? (laughs) And That's all we did. He looked at us. He got kind of mad. You could see he was kind of calculating his odds, and he finally sighed and left in a huff. I felt very strong at that moment because I was in the presence of someone who was strong. You get what I'm getting at? When the Lord is behind you, when the Lord has your back, it doesn't matter how big you are or how intelligent you are or how impressive you are. It's the Lord that makes the difference. Strength to strength. Because the Lord can go with us on our journey by the presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives, we go from strength to strength. One of the reasons why we want to find ourselves in the presence of God is uh, what we're told here in the 11th verse. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold. One of the things that we as Christians believe that makes us different than other people is that uh, the presence of God is the good life and that we find the God that we're looking for in Christ Jesus. So we believe in the good life. But the world doesn't believe that. The world doesn't associate God the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the good life, does it? I mean, if it did, uh, would it behave the way it does, (laughs) right? Would the practices and the fads and all the things that we see in our larger community actually be the case if people really did believe that living in the presence of God is the good life? No good thing does he withhold. Now, there are reasons why people don't believe that. Well, one is that, you know, there have been a lot of lies spread about God. And this goes all the way back to the, to the start. What was the temptation in the garden but a set of lies? Lies that were told to our first parents, and they believed them. They believed those lies. Another thing that uh, I think is a problem is that there are desires that we feel that we uh, have, but have actually taken possession of us, that lie to us. We believe these desires to be in our best interest. And because we believe these desires are in our best interest, we give ourselves over to these desires and find out too late that we've been made fools of. By what? Ourselves. We've given ourselves over to things in ourselves that are not really wholesome or good or in our best interest. And so we believe these lying desires. One of the things about this particular psalm that I think is worth noting and really gets at the gracious character that's expressed of God that's expressed in this psalm and why we want to be in his presence is the backstory. Now here in your in your bulletin, you don't have the introduction to the psalm that you find in many editions of the Scriptures. But let me take you to uh, 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 the, the introduction uh, to the psalm that you find in the ESV. We're told there uh, that the psalm is addressed to the choir master and it is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Now, if you know your Old Testament, particularly if you know the book of Numbers, and if you're acquainted with the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers, there's a remarkable episode there about a guy named Korah and his followers. Turns out that uh, there was a rebellion. So, Korah and his supporters were all Levites, and they were offended offended with Moses and offended with Aaron because they had been consigned to the meager task of being doorkeepers in the house of the Lord. They had aspirations. They wanted to be great. And they were envious, jealous of Aaron and his sons. They wanted that job. They wanted to be priests. And so... They came to Moses and to Aaron and said, you guys are so full of yourselves. This is the they paraphrase. <laughs> you guys are so full of yourselves. You have exalted yourself over your brothers. We're just as good as you. We're just as good as you. We're Levites. We're just as good as you. Moses falls on his face, says, this wasn't my idea. This isn't something I made up. I was told to do this by the Lord. And then there's a test. If you, you know, are right, and I'm wrong, then things will play out this way. If I've been really addressed by the Lord and told to do this, then it'll work out another way. And then Moses tells them what's going to happen. Then he sends a warning to everybody around. Make sure you give these guys plenty of space. (laughs) Don't get too close to their tents, the tents of the wicked, because of what's about to occur. And what happens? The earth opens up and swallows Korah and his tents. Now, we have these guys called the sons of Korah. How could they even be around if Korah and his household was completely consumed? Well, we're told later in chapter 26, verse 11, that not all the sons of Korah perished. Some escaped, and these are their descendants. And guess what? They're very grateful for their job. (laughs) It's better to be a doorkeeper (laughs) in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And who are the wicked that they're referring to? They're referring to their own ancestors. Isn't that amazing? They're referring to their own ancestors. God graciously let them keep their jobs. What were they they told to do? They were doorkeepers. By the way, a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord is not just simply, simply a guy that stands at the door and opens the door for people. It's basically a bouncer. That's the doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. So these guys, are, they have shields. <laughs> uh, they're meant, you know, Their task was to get, keep you from getting too close to the Lord because the Lord could break out against you because of your wickedness and consume you. They had some experience with that, <laughs> right? But also uh, to make certain that you didn't go where you were not invited, uh, where you shouldn't go. So they had a very important task. They were porters in the house of the Lord, and they were a choir, choir boys who could beat you up. That's the sons of Korah. And they're grateful, and they're in the presence of the Lord, and this is where they want to be. They don't envy the sons of Aaron. They don't envy the priesthood. They don't have aspirations to be more than than what they've been called to be. They're content, and they know they're blessed. There's a lot that we can learn from that, really a lot that we can learn from that. You want to know what the real secret of happiness is? It's not having a big house. It's not having a fat bank account. It's not having a lot of people to work for you. It's none of that stuff. It's gratitude. Gratitude is the secret. If you're not happy, here's the formula for happiness. Count your blessings. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And before you know it, you'll see what God has done. And it'll stir up gratitude and a sense of blessedness that money can't buy. That not even living on Cape Cod can do for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your grace. We can all look at a point in our lives when we were ungrateful uh, and Lord, you didn't consume us. Uh, instead, you were patient with us, and redeemed us, and it brought us to the place we find ourselves now. And we know we're on a trek that will eventually end with us in your presence. We pray, Lord, that we will go from strength to strength, though, that we will know and enjoy your presence now as we make this journey into your presence then. In Jesus' name, amen.